Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. So I was talking to someone this week, and they mentioned to me that they thought the Tech Ed Podcast was causing a ruckus in technical education. I don't even know that I know what a ruckus is. But that sounded pretty good. And if that means something like we're trying to disrupt the world of technical education, that sounds absolutely perfect. We're going to talk a little bit about disrupting technical education and disrupting the world of robotics today. I'm looking forward to getting into that conversation. My name is Matt Kirkner. I am your host this week and every single week for the Tech Ed Podcast. One of the things we talk about a lot on the Tech Ed Podcast, in addition to this whole idea of disruption, is the incredible importance of inspiring young people toward careers in STEM, in robotics, in automation, in manufacturing, in industry. And it's interesting, if you look at what it takes to inspire a young person, and this is according to data that was gathered a few years back by SkillsUSA and the Manufacturing Institute, the number one influencer of a young person's career pathway is their own interests and experiences when they are in middle school and high school. That is why the work that today's guest is doing is so very important. We're going to dive right into that. My guest today is Dan Mance. Dan is the CEO, the Chief Executive Officer of the Robotics Education and Competition Foundation, commonly known as the REC Foundation. And we are really excited to have you on board, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Matt. I'm super excited to uh, be on the program, and I love what you do. Uh, We need a little bit of disruption in this industry. So let's see if we can do a little bit of disruption here today on the Tech Ed Podcast. Let's start out with this for our audience members who may not be completely familiar with the REC Foundation. Dan, tell us about your organization. Well, the REC Foundation, uh, we're a 15-year old organization now with our mission to increase student interest in STEM by engaging students in hands-on, affordable, sustainable robotics education programs. What we're really best known for is running the VEX Robotics Competition. It's the largest robotics competition in the United States. We're not necessarily always the best known, um, but pre-pandemic, we were approaching 30,000 teams. Uh, Obviously, we took a little bit step back, but coming out of the the pandemic, uh, we still had over 24,000 teams last year. We're in 70 countries. So our VEX Robotics programs are K through university, students design, build, uh, engineer, and compete. But the REC Foundation is more than just the VEX Robotics competitions. We have education programs and workforce development programs. Uh, We're very, very proud of that. Uh, We believe that while our our mission is to get students involved in STEM, STEM doesn't necessarily mean earning a four-year STEM degree. Uh, We have a huge need in this country right now for uh, tech jobs. You know, the future is tech industry 4.0. So we have programs that get those students that might not have the interest or might not have the financial resources to jump right into a a four-year program. We provide programs to give them the skills that they can get good robot operators jobs or they can get good tech operator jobs um, right out of high school with partners such as Google, Tesla, Northrop Grumman. Uh, A lot of times these students will get apprenticeships while they're earning money. They're still being paid to go to college, to go to trade schools and ultimately earn their four-year degrees anyway. Uh, We also believe that not everything is mobile robotics anymore. 
Three years ago, we made the decision to get into drones. Uh, there's a lot of students out there that may be interested in STEM, but they didn't like the traditional offerings, but everybody loves flying a drone. So we actually uh, started drones programs and we're reaching a lot of students uh, that were maybe weren't gonna consider a technical degree, but they start doing drones, they start programming, they start adding sensors to the drones and they're hooked also. Uh, besides running our VEX robotics programs, you mentioned uh, Skills USA. We run the robotics competition for Skills USA as well as TSA. And we actually run um, robotics competitions for JROTC. It's one of our uh, fastest growing programs. We realize that uh, not everybody needs technology through the traditional high school approach. Uh, there's lots of different avenues to reach students. You know, plenty keeping you busy there, Dan, at the REC Foundation. More than 24,000 teams in, uh, competing in VEX Robotics in 70 different countries. That's fascinating. I love the, the approach on uh, accessibility and affordability, reaching maybe underserved communities, students that maybe wouldn't have had these types of opportunities without your organization. So incredibly important. And I'm looking forward to getting into some of those uh, manufacturing partnerships that you have as well with organizations like Tesla, Northrop Grumman, and technology partnerships with folks like Google. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast as well. But we're, we're always interested on the TechEd podcast is how do you get to where you are? You're now the CEO of this incredibly influential organization. Tell our audience how you got there. Sure. I mean, I went to college at Kettering University in Flint, Michigan. And for the audience that doesn't know, they're a five-year co-op school and I work for General Motors. Uh, about a year after I graduated, I was I was working there and a friend of mine uh, referred me to FANUC. And I started at FANUC as a controls engineer in their paint finishing division. And I, I did, you know, different controls applications all over the world. I had the, the opportunity to travel and do paint projects um, in five different continents over 20 countries, I was the guy that always raised my hand and said, yeah, I'll, I'll learn these new control systems. Uh, my expertise besides controls was also pneumatics. Uh, and ultimately, I ended up in product development where I was the director of new products, um, particularly paint finishing division products. It was a great job. Uh, I learned so much. I had an incredible team of mechanical and electrical engineers. But after 20 years, I was ready for something else. A friend of mine had relocated to Texas and there was an opening for president of a company called Rack Solutions. So I went from the most high-tech world of robotics and controls and, and closed loop systems and sensors to a company that did sheet metal products for mm -hmm. data centers. So um, basically everybody knows about high-end data center products, fast computers and all that stuff. All that stuff needs to be racked and controlled and stuff. So we manufactured uh, racking systems and, and other infrastructure products. And we were competing primarily against China manufactured products, but you know our niche was customization and fast lead time. So in this new endeavor, we didn't have a lot of automation. So I used this opportunity to go back to my roots and, um, and I actually started coaching robotics. And uh, I never had had the opportunity when I was in Michigan because I was, I was so busy. So back here in, in Texas, I started coaching robotics. Uh, my friend was the president of X Robotics at the time and I would give him suggestions. I would give him free advice all the time on how he could make the program better. So he asked if I would join the board to share some of my thoughts. And I did join the board six years ago. After about six months, I shared my vision and the board asked if I would consider uh, joining the REC Foundation as the CEO. And I said yes, under a couple conditions. And the most important thing to me was I didn't want to just focus on mobile robotics. I really felt 
that we needed to give students other opportunities to do STEM competitions. And that I also wanted to move the focus to workforce development, not just traditional STEM. You know, everybody back then was STEM this, STEM that, but I come from rural Pennsylvania and I tell this story a lot. There was five of us, we all had, you know, they called them gentlemen farm, you know, 10 to 30 acre pieces of property. And we're all in the same vicinity. And the five of us would run around and build motorbikes and go-karts and tree forts and stuff. And of the five of us, I was the only one who pursued going to college. Hmm. But the four of them went to trade schools, you know, two became machine tool operators. Uh, one became an HVAC person. One became a big rig mechanic. And none of them ever lost their jobs. And I, from my background, realized that we really need to be investing in the workforce. As the industry changed, we needed to be investing in the people running robotics, maintaining robots, and not just the robots, but the conveyor systems and all the supporting stuff. So when I agreed to become CEO of the REC Foundation, it was that we could also establish workforce development programs. So not just for the kids that were going to go pursue a four-year or two-year degree, but also the students to get jobs. And uh, the board agreed. I always joked that I think they were humoring me. They'd say I'd be so busy with FEX robotics competitions that I wouldn't have time for that. And we have. In the last five years, we went from 14,000 teams to almost 30,000 teams pre-pandemic. Um, but we did find time to establish those drones programs and those workforce developments. So uh, I like to tell everybody my career went full circle. I started as an engineer at FANUC. I worked my way up to a director level where we were developing some of the most advanced systems in the world. And then I'm at the education side. And uh, again, I'm hoping that some of the people that come from our programs are working in the factories using uh, not just FANUC robots, but every robot, and that some of our students are becoming the next engineers at these high-tech companies. And no doubt that that's exactly what is happening as you're doing this amazing work of inspiring these young people toward career opportunities that they maybe didn't even know they had, or they understand that they have interests or skills, natural talents that they didn't know that they had, and then putting them on that right pathway. And I know that's really important to you, uh, Dan, as you look at the work that you're doing at the REC Foundation. I also get the sense that this isn't just a job for you, that this is really a passion. This is something that you've dedicated your career and your life to. Why is it that the work that you're doing is so very important to you on a personal level? Again, it goes to back to my background where I saw so many good, you know, good, talented people that just didn't have the desire to go to college, but they still um, had this talents to have good, productive careers. And I think we got away for that for a while. You know, you talk about being disruptive. The message was, if you were going to have a high-paying career, you needed to have a four-year degree. So a lot of people went into debt to get four-year degrees, and they earned degrees that really didn't lead to the type of jobs that they wanted. You know, meanwhile, at FANUC, we're installing systems all over the world, and we're hiring people that don't have degrees to to program the robots, to install the robots, to maintain the robots. And these are high paying, solid recession-proof jobs, right? When the, when the country goes into recessions, the robots still keep working. And that always had a big impact on me. And I just felt that the messaging that everybody needed to get a STEM degree wasn't right. We absolutely need people in STEM. You know, many of our you know, sponsors are, are hoping that we're developing the next generation of engineers and scientists and stuff like that. I'm not minimizing that, but we also need more people in this new workforce that understand technology. They understand artificial intelligence. They understand robotics. 
And that's there's the growth in that sector is much larger than the growth sector in traditional engineering. So I just wanted to make sure that if I think back to my upbringing in, in rural Pennsylvania and then my time in Flint, Michigan, that we give the students out there an opportunity to have these, these really good paying, very, very important jobs. So it is passion to me. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, you make some great observations. One of the things that that I'm always just fascinated by is the way that education is evolving. And, you know, in, in my days of, I guess, secondary education, and that's now going back some years, uh, you know, you, you really were kind of picking pathways. And if you were going to be that engineering student or a business student, you were kind of in different classes, maybe and different programs and different extracurricular activities than the students that were going to be, you know, as you mentioned, your your friends, a big rig operator or HVAC technician or a uh, machine tool operator. You know, those were kind of different pathways, at least when I was in high school. What we're seeing now is that students in high school are jumping back and forth between these different career opportunities. And you're not even necessarily having to decide as you're a junior in high school, am I going to be a a degreed engineer or am I going to be a machine tool builder or a a machinist or a machine operator? You, You can step from one to the other, right? You can start your career as a technician. You can start your career as an equipment operator. If you love doing that work, you can do that for your whole career. In the industry and have a career that's that's rewarding, that's high paying, that's family supporting. But you can also decide along the way that to do something a little bit different. You can go to a two-year associate degree program and then step into an engineering program. And I think that's that's in one of the ways, one of the one of the things that as we talk again about disruption, that that the world of education is being disrupted as we look at what's taking place in technical education and how democratized it's become in so many great ways. You've got a student who's learning, um, you know, maybe pre-engineering sitting right next to a student who's going to be programming a robot when they leave high school. And, and it's just a great way for them to learn. You're right. And, you know, one of the things that I love about my background at, at Kettering University and then at FANUC is when I went through, you know, college and then in my year, early years at FANUC, you didn't necessarily have to have engineering degree, advanced degrees to teach um, technology at Kettering University. We had a lot of people that earned their stripes in the auto industry, and they had more knowledge than any PhD person out there. And FANUC was the same way. The best performers got the opportunities, whether they had a four-year engineering degree or not. My first manager at FANUC in controls didn't have a degree, but he knew control systems inside out. And he was a mentor to, you know, hundreds of controls engineers. Many of the people at FANUC, you know, started as a controls engineer under Larry and started their own controls companies. And not everybody had degrees, right? And and I think we've kind of we kind of lost our way a little bit. I think that's what I love about, for example, Tesla's externship program. Um, they take students that are interested in manufacturing careers and they don't have to have uh, a degree. They don't have to even be entering it. And they learn how to work on the robots. They learn how to do maintenance. And while in the process, they're giving opportunities to learn industry certifications. And then there are opportunities to go get a two-year degree and then an opportunity to get a four-year degree. And so a lot of people that start these externship programs end up becoming engineers. A lot of them love maintaining robots. A lot of them become path operators. They do a great job. You know, Honda has similar programs in Ohio. And and I'm very proud that the REC Foundation is part of Tesla's program, right? Tesla chose us because of our focus on workforce development to be the lead on, on, on their partner on some of these externships opportunities. Matter of fact, I'm going to Tesla um, at their Gigafactory next week for this year's externship class, right? So I think as the, the more progressive open companies realize there's not 
a traditional model anymore. And, and you know, one of the things in this country too is, is we we're fortunate to get a, a grant from Advanced Robotics and Manufacturing Institute. And the focus wasn't four-year students, it was actually two-year schools, because we have a unique uh, opportunity in this country with our two-year schools for those students that went through high school and maybe their focus was on music or athletics or something like that. All of a sudden now they need to get a good paying job it's not that they've missed the boat. They can go to these two-year schools and get that basic skill system. And, um, and I, I'm proud that the REC Foundation partners with two-year colleges to provide some of our programs. And I want to drill down a little bit more, Dan, into VEX Robotics. You covered a little bit in the, in the opening discussion about the number of students, the different countries that you're involved with, the, the levels of education that you're, that you're serving. But for anybody that isn't familiar with VEX, Robotics. Who is it for? What are the skills and technologies that students are learning and so on? So VEX makes incredible education products. Uh, they were best known for their VEX robotics kits uh, that were geared more to competition, but they've really um, focused on classroom too. And uh, they have an entire offering of K through university products. Uh, and it's all progressive too. So when you start in a VEX program, in kindergarten through second grade, the concepts you learn build. All their educational materials are standards align, um, and they really have an incredible focus on computer science also. They have some of the most hands-on, easy to learn computer science programs. So VEX is, uh, what I, they just make incredible uh, educational resources and educational products. Uh, what we do at the REC Foundation is we run the competitions, right? So uh, like I said earlier, we have other programs, drones programs, et cetera, but our part largest program is the VEX Robotics. And, and, and the importance is, is what you learn in the classroom is great, but when you actually have a chance to be hands-on and, and take those concepts you've learned in the classroom and then compete, it really brings it all together. All the data shows that students that uh, take what they learn in the classroom and then actually build and compete. It reinforces and does it. Um, and, and, and their learning and understanding is much better. So uh, we take some of these great programs, including a lot of their computer science programs. We have online challenges. We have part of our competition is autonomous mode and demonstrating program. So we take all the concepts uh, and we bring it into the real world so students can build robots, program robots, and compete. I know you just had an amazing competition in Dallas, Texas. 20,000 students from all over the world came to Dallas, Texas to compete. Tell us about this event you just finished up. Yeah, we just we just finished the, the 2022 VEX Robotics World Championship. It was the 15th year of our world championship. Um, it was amazing. It was the largest we've ever had. Um, Guinness Book of World Records already recognizes our world championship as the world's largest robotics competition. Um, but we even exceeded the numbers uh, from the past. So uh, we had uh, we didn't have as many countries this year. Some countries were still not able to travel into the U.S., but we still had 48 different countries represented. We had 2,960 teams there in person. We also ran a remote competition, which had a few more hundred teams. And we actually ran an Asia-Pacific division um, for the countries in the Asia-Pacific, uh, primarily China that couldn't travel, that had another 400 teams. So, you know, together we were well over 3,000 teams. The teams will compete First, very, very local, right? They may just have a couple competitions within their school, within their community, and then they start going to larger um, competitions within their state and then regional. And each time they earn an invitation to their state championship, the regional championship, and it culminates in the VEX Robotics World Championship. So it's an amazing feat. It's a very big logistical challenge to have 
support 3,000 teams. Um, we have multiple competitions going on at the same time. So our high school teams are competing. The JRTC division is competing. Then we have our middle school and our elementary school programs. For the first time ever, we had our Drones World Championship at the same time. Um, but it was super exciting. Uh, we like we like the pizzazz. We like the lasers. We like the light shows. We also recognize some leading partners. Uh, we recognize people into our STEM Hall of Fame. The REC Foundation actually uh, runs the STEM Hall of Fame, and we actually have the International Robotics Honor Society. So we use our VEX World Championship to recognize those students and, and volunteers and huge contributors too. But it, it all comes together um, the first two weeks of May. We crown our world champions. But like I like to tell everybody, at the end of the two weeks, we're only crowning, you know, what, 16 world champions, but we have 3,000 teams. So mm -hmm. the idea is to make sure that everybody there is, is getting something out of the experience. And the words that I hear the most is life-changing. And, and I hate saying that because it sounds so dramatic, but parents come up to me, students come up to me, and the ability to meet with students from different states and different countries and see how everybody else approaches the design process, the engineering process is life-changing. And, and one of the things I've started talking about on podcasts about three years ago is robotics is its own language. I mean, when you have 70 countries in your program, that's probably... 45 to 50 different languages being spoken. But when they get to the field, they're speaking robotics. And there's huge cultural differences too. But all that's put aside because they're all trying to achieve the same thing. And that's get the best score, the best autonomous score. And I think this language of robotics actually breaks down cultural differences too. And you realize that a, a 12-year-old boy in China is very similar to a 12-year-old boy in Canada, which is very similar to a 12-year-old boy in Zimbabwe or Nigeria, right? They all have the same dreams and hopes. And, and we have our young women and we have our girl-powered initiative, which is just absolutely transferable. We always have girl-powered workshops and we show not just the girls, but we show the boys too, that we're all equal and we're all striving. We all have the same capabilities. And, uh, and matter of fact, in the last two years, some of our world champions have been uh, young women on robotics teams too. So we're showing that we all have a place at the table. You know, it's really interesting that you bring that up and you, you know, you think about, um, to your point, bringing students together from places like China, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Canada, all speaking the quote language of robotics. And it really is kind of a great equalizer in so many ways. In fact, we have a number of states across the United States now that are actually offering robotics as a foreign language that you can actually get your foreign language credit by going through a robotics program, which really gives us a an example of how this common language not only is, is being viewed across the United States in so many ways as a separate way of communicating, but to your point, and it's really one that, to be honest, I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about these students from all over the country, all over the globe, rather, regardless of what language they speak at home are speaking the language of robotics with each other. So just a great example of how we can knock down barriers and build relationships between people. Yep. And that was uh, something that hit me about three years ago. Um, I was literally watching a competition and it was some students from Minnesota, some students from Alabama, the UK and China. That was the four teams in that particular match. And uh, let's be honest, the, the dialect in Minnesota is a lot different than the dialect in Alabama, right? And then you have China in there. And it was just, it really hit me that it didn't matter because they were strategizing. And the beauty thing about that match, I'll never forget this, is there was these three young boys that were like, we have a great robot, 
um, this is what we're going to do. And there was a team of girls um, that were the same age, but they were taller. And they said, well, we've been watching you guys your last three matches. And we think you're really, really good at this. And we're really good at this. So let's try this strategy. And we think if we try this strategy, we'll have the high score. And that's exactly what happened. So we had people from two different countries, young men, young women, putting aside their biases and their differences, uh, communicating on a strategy and setting a high score for the tournament. And that's when I really realized that, hey, this is a language. And that's I said, next time I get an opportunity to go on a podcast, I'm going to share that theory, right? So I firmly believe that. You, you talked earlier that this is a passion for me. And it's when I took the job, I, want, I don't want to say that robotics competitions were a passion for me. I was a coach and some of my teams were really successful, but I liked it from the workforce development aspect. But you cannot help not being in this industry and seeing the impact we have, not just on the students and their parents, but the impact we're making for our economy and the, and the next generation of employers and not have passion for this job. Well, and make a difference and do the work of workforce, which I know is important to you. And, and in so many ways, those are really well connected. I mean, just, it was just occurring to me as we've been chatting, you use words like design and engineering and strategy. That is the, the language. That is the life of somebody in corporate America and industry and manufacturing. A lot of what you're teaching on the education side and what students are experiencing and the competencies they're gaining through participating in your competition, those are real world, actual skills and competencies that are going to serve them well when they get to the workforce. So incredibly interesting how closely those two are connected. Let's talk now a little bit about, you know, maybe pathways, a little bit about types of robotics. We mentioned in the introduction that you and I both share a a lot of respect for FANUC. People that have listened to this podcast for some time know that Mike Chico, the president and CEO of FANUC America. I know we share a friend in Paul Aiello as well, Paul, the direct, executive director of education now for FANUC, who's just done as much as anybody, in my opinion, to democratize and create opportunities for young people as they find, um, find pathways into industrial robotics. I want you to talk a little bit about the connection between VEX and industrial robotics. And I'll, you know, I'll just kind of maybe share my view and you can tell me if you agree, disagree. I, one of the things I really like about VEX is that it sparks this interest in young people. It, it, it gets them excited about designing, engineering. It's, it's affordable. And I think that's really, really important. And to me, they create a great interest that can segue into industrial robotic platforms. And, and I, you know, nobody's, nobody's unaware of my bias toward FANUC. So I don't, I'm not shy about using them as my example. And, and so you create these pathways toward industrial robotics. Do you see it the same way? I mean, is this inspiring students to pursue courses and careers in industrial robotics where they're using the types of, let's, for example, paint robots that you were so effective in designing and patenting when you were at FANUC? I think the connection was very soft. And I think we're changing that now. I think the REC Foundation is, is driving that change because of the focus on the engineering design process. So what we do here at the REC Foundation with our engineering notebook is exactly what I did on my first day at FANUC. My first day at FANUC, they gave me a black engineering notebook. And I will admit, I really insisted in our programs that our engineering notebook still, the students still had to write. But what it really comes down to at least through the REC Foundation programs now, is, is the familiarity. So there wasn't a direct connect to industrial robotics before, but I think we're changing that. And that's because we're teaching the concepts of 
coordinate systems, for example. We're really emphasizing speed versus accuracy. We actually have three competitions in a VEX robotics competition. We have your traditional you know, robots uh, working with other robots for the highest scores, robots competing against robotics, your traditional robotics. But we also have um, our skills challenges and we have a driver skills challenge, which it's the, the driver of that one robot trying to get the highest score possible, right? And in order to do that, they really have to use sensors. So um, Vex will tell you one of my contributions is from my FANUC days, I'm a big believer in sensors. So the teams that are going to win that driving skills are going to be the teams that really learn to utilize sensors. And then we have our autonomous challenge, which is 100% hands-off. You have, depending on the program, a minute or two minutes um, to score as much as you can um, through your programming. And again, we've released um, during the pandemic our AI competition, and that's uh, got GPS sensors and better camera sensors, and our fields have GPS strips that has really increased the level of using sensors and using programs. And because of that, I think that now maps back to better to the industrial robotics, industrial automation, and industry 4.0. I'm a huge, huge believer and advocate of industry 4.0. So because of that, we are actually um, pushing our programs to better align with industry 4.0 technologies. You know, so I think five years ago, that was one of my, uh, I think this is the first time I've ever actually talked about it, but that was one of my little like hidden objectives is I wanted to make competitive robotics uh, align better with industrial robotics. So I don't know that that really existed, but I think we're getting there now. Well, I think your strategy and the way that you touch on Industry 4.0 and the way that you touch on connecting all these technologies is is really wise and it's really astute. You know, we had Blake Moret, who's the CEO of Rockwell Automation, uh, another another member of the uh, Tech Ed Podcast Alumni Circle, was on with us last year. Blake is a great guy; lives here in southeastern Wisconsin, not too far from us. In in his uh, vice president of global business development is a guy named. Tom O'Reilly. And Tom is also a good friend of ours. And I interviewed Tom a couple of years ago when we were talking about what should, in this case, technical college deans be thinking about putting into their programs. And, and his, his answer, I think, was right on par with what you just talked about, which is he said, look, we need to understand everything you know, from the sensor and device level all the way up to the enterprise level and everything in between. And that really is industry 4.0, right? It's smart sensors and smart devices making their own decisions, communicating with each other, sending the only the pertinent information to a, to a control system, and then maybe to a computer network, and then to a data collector, and then up to the cloud where all this information is analyzed, and we're using it in predictive models. We're using it in, as you know, you suggest artificial intelligence, certainly machine learning, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, classification learning, all this stuff. And, and when you talk about the focus on sensors, and then what are we doing with that? How are we then analyzing all that data? That's exactly what industry is telling us that they need when they're recruiting their next generation of talent. So now we've talked about robotics in schools. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the ancillary technologies. I think sometimes people hear, well, I'm, you know, I'm learning robot programming. Am I, is my job going to be just going and programming a robot in a manufacturing plant for the next you know, 40, 50 years? I think you and I both know that it can be so much more than that. What are some of those ancillary technologies in the world of robotics that also lead to really cool career pathways for young people? I think the number one that I see, and I've seen this back at my days at FANUC, is uh, people having the 
opportunity to, to, to solve the problem differently, right? Some of the, the best, um, at, at FANUC, we called them um, process engineers, and they were the, the staff that programmed the robots to paint the cars or do the welding or pick up the parts, right? So um, they, they had to integrate the end of arm toolings or the paint applicators and, and make it all work together. A lot of these process engineers I worked with didn't have degrees, but some of the most effective process engineers I ever worked with, the ones that saw the technology and they saw a better way to do it. So I think that's the number one exciting part is get them into the factory, um, get them into any place where uh, robotics is used. It could be um, stocking shelves. It could be at a distribution center. There's many, many robot applications now. And I think any of these people, no matter what the background are, they're going to see a more efficient and effective and creative way to do it. So I think that's the exciting part is people are going to find a better way and they're going to really challenge themselves. And I think that's when one of the areas the United States has always excelled at is our creativity, right? I mean, there's other industrial giants out there. They've refined the processes. They've tweak the processes of the Japanese, and it's no secret they were known in the 80s and 90s for refining and tweaking manufacturing. But the one thing we do really well in the United States is through your creativity. So I think these technologies, that's what we're going to bring to these robot operators as a, as a way to use their, their creativity and their knowledge to find a better way to solve the problem. And then again, you know, you know, maybe I wouldn't want to make a career of 40 years of, of programming a robot. I admit it. Um, but this does lead to other opportunities. So now you've been the guy programming at Ford Motor Company, the paint robots for five years. And now you've got the new F-150 coming out and they're going to redo the paint shop. And now you have input on what's the better way to do it, right? So now all of a sudden you've become... Um, you know, a robot programmer. Now you're a senior process engineer where you're helping define how you do it. I think these people that are going to learn these programming technologies are also going to challenge the conventional thinking and they're going to increase productivity. So I think that's the exciting part. People are going to be able to get as much out of it as they want to. I really see future VPs of technology, VPs of engineering, and even future presidents and CEOs not necessarily being people like ourselves that have teaching or engineering or business degrees. I think you're going to see a lot of people that are creative that get into industrial robotics or any type of robotics and they find a better way to solve a problem. And they're going to be the ones that are running these companies in the future. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think they'll enter a really, really fascinating world of manufacturing. We're seeing a whole bunch of different trends and a whole bunch of different practices converge. You know, you referenced the, uh, you know, the Japanese in the 80s and 90s, and some might even say going all the way back to the to the 50s and, and 60s with people like Deming and, and Joe DeFeo and others that that brought the brought the practices of lean manufacturing to Japan, because at that time, the American manufacturers weren't all that excited about hearing their ideas. And then, of course, they transformed manufacturing, such a huge part of that um, in, in the, the movement with the Toyota production system and Taishi Ono is this this whole idea of lean. And, and Kaizen and continuous improvement and involving our teams. I mean, that was such a huge trend here in the U.S., probably starting at least for me in my manufacturing days, you know, 2000, 2005 or so, although it was going on before then, it really kind of started to take root. And you started asking the people who actually do the work, how you can improve the process or getting different ideas from different people. You know, when you're solving a problem in manufacturing, come up with five solutions and pick the best one. Or come up with five solutions and maybe combine two of them for the best solution. It's not always the most obvious solution, the one that occurs to us first that is the best 
solution. And so as you talk about solving the problem differently and coming at it from a different angle, certainly those are the types of skills and the types of competencies that are going to be gained by students participating in VEX by competing in, in competitions and, and certainly through the work of the Robotics Education and Competition Foundation, the REC Foundation, the CEO of which is our guest here today on the Tech Ed Podcast covering all kinds of cool stuff. And we're going to now move into the world of drones and drone technology. You know, who had even heard of a drone 10 years ago, Dan, and now they're becoming so ubiquitous. Real world applications continue to grow and continue to evolve. Where do you see drones changing and impacting the world that we live in? And why do you see them as the next generation of robotics in education? Yeah, I, I you know, the funny thing is drones 10 years ago were being used in agriculture. And because mm -hmm. I'm a rural boy, I knew that. And it's we talked about earlier that when I took the job at the REC Foundation, I wanted to diversify our offerings. And, and drones is one of the first programs that we decided to launch. And I think it's going to be our fastest growth program by far. Um, and I did it for a, a different reason. Again, I wanted to excite students about tech careers that maybe weren't interested in mobile robotics and, and drones are maybe a little bit a lower entry point at the beginning and a little bit more fun. And that part worked. But the fact of the matter is these students um, that are doing drones have so many applications. And, and that's part of our curriculum for drones is we, we start with the basics of flight technology and, and sensors and stuff like that. But we also include the real world applications. And, uh, you know, for example, here in Texas, drones now are used to inspect oil rigs, right? Mm -hmm. So before that was a much manual process, lots of labor, now they fly a drone. Uh, we talked about agricultural uses have been around for more than a decade. Um, but, you know, package delivery, everybody's talking about drones for package delivery. And there's a, an outfit here in, in Texas that's actually doing it now. And we're only at the precipice of what drones are going to be. And our drones programs, we have two different types of drones programs. We have our aerial drone competition, which is a combination of dexterity of flying the drones through hoops and then also doing some tasks such as delivering cargo or moving some product and stuff like that. And, and that's a basic level entry. Um, and that's very applicable because people need to, to do the drones. But we also have a more advanced drones contest. It's called the Bell Vertical Robotics Competition. And uh, it's uh, Bell is the primary sponsor for that one. But that's where we're using drones Last year, um, the competition was to rescue people, right? Rescue people from a landslide. And this next year's competition will be about firefighting and, and using drones now to, to put out forest fires or even more importantly, identify hot spots before they become a fire, right? So drones is one of the next wave of robotics. And it actually mixes back with sensors, which we've talked about my passion for sensors and artificial intelligence, right? So in the challenge of of identifying what could become a forest fire, you're mixing sensors and, and some basic knowledge there. So I, I just think that uh, it's a whole different parallel path. And I do think you'll see convergence. I think our best technology solutions in the future will be um, ground robots with aerial robots, right? And I, let's be honest, the military is already doing that anyway, right? So we're probably lagging the military by at least a decade in some of these applications, but uh, it's an exciting new world. And I encourage the students out there to, to fly a drone. I really do. I think, you know, even if it's not what you want to pursue, understand that the running of the joystick and, and the lift and the moving forward and, and attaching a camera and seeing what it can do, um, just like in mobile robotics, if you play with a mobile robotics, then it's not intimidating when it becomes part of your work job and it becomes part of uh, 
you know, our day-to-day -day living in the future. So I encourage all students to, to play with these technologies, even if they don't pursue it. You know, Sri Sarapelli, he's with Texas A&M University, was on with us a couple months ago talking about some of his research on the on the drone and autonomous vehicle front and talking about ground robots and aerial robots and some of his work for the Department of Defense. Obviously, he couldn't disclose much, but doing some crazy things. I, I want to I first say it's probably a good thing that our military is a little bit ahead of us on some of, <laughs> some of these technologies. So that isn't it isn't unnerving for me at all. It, it might be unnerving in the other direction. You know, one of the other applications for drone technology that fascinates me because I'm an avid downhill skier is finding avalanche victims. And it's amazing yeah. how they're using drones and sensors and, and not just the technology, but also understanding the flight path and the most efficient flight path to identify uh, an avalanche victim and get to them before uh, before something terrible happens and, and, and rescue that individual. Um, just really, really important application. So there's, there's no question to your point that there's going to be tremendous innovation and in that drones and mobile robotics are the technologies of the future. On that topic, Dan, as you think about best practices that educators and industrial employers uh, should be thinking about in terms of identifying gaps between maybe what education is doing and what industry is looking for and vice versa. You know, what are some of those best practices to close the gaps between workforce and education? So first of all, one of the things is we need to invest earlier, right? Um, and I do think we're trending towards now investing earlier, but for a long time, companies wanted to invest in high school students. And some of our biggest partners, the focus was on high school, right? To the point where once the high school world championship was over, companies would pack up. But that's, to me, short-sighted thinking, right? We need to really invest earlier. And, and I'm definitely seeing a trend to investing in, in these programs in, in elementary school, definitely in middle school. So that's the one paradigm we have to break is, you know, you don't invest in the kids in, as they go into ninth and 10th grade and think they're going to join your workforce because their biases are already set, you know, especially in this country with so much entertainment and the emphasis on sports and stuff like that. So number one, emphasize earlier. Number two, and uh, whenever I, I, I go to on podcasts or I'm in, invited to talk to a board or an advisory committee, and we talk about we need to focus on machine learning, we need to focus on industry 4.0 and all these things that I personally firmly believe, then they say, Dan, what are we missing? And I say, man, we need to teach the kids to communicate. We need to go back to making sure we are teaching students to read and write and communicate, right? People ask the success from my career and, you know, some of, a lot of it is, you know, right place, right time, you know, some breaks here and there, things like that. But the one thing I was able to do uh, early in my career is I was a decent communicator, right? So I was that technical person that the sales guys would take along. And uh, I feel that being able to communicate has really helped me. And I think that we need to make sure that our students, we talk about technology and programming and stuff like that, but we have to make sure that our students are, are literate and can actually read and write. Um, I think that we have to go back to that basics. And then we also have to make math fun again too, right? So for me, math was fun. Now I admit I'm, I'm a strange guy and I'm wired a little bit differently, but there are ways to make math fun that it's not intimidating. So let's go back to teaching reading, writing, make math fun, make science fun, and then teach you know, computer literacy at the same time. That's really what I would recommend. Make math fun again, invest earlier, and, and don't just teach Industry 4.0 machine learning technologies, which are really, really important, but teach communication as well. You know, you, communication, I think, was 
was atrophying before the pandemic and, and with, with the pandemic and students being out of the classroom and, and out of the school building, in some cases, way longer than, uh, than many of us expected them to be. I think that really had an adverse effect in so many ways on our, on our students' ability to communicate uh, with each other, just verbally and probably written communication and reading as well. So getting back to that, really, really important. We're closing out our time here today with Dan Mance, the CEO of the REC Foundation. Dan, before I ask my final question, if our folks, our audience want to know a little bit more about your organization, where do they go? So the easiest thing to do is always go to our website, which is roboticseducation.org. Again, that's roboticseducation.org. From there, you can navigate like any website. We do have you know, an about um, page and a contact page. We have a global map. So if you click on any state or country, it'll tell you who your uh, REC Foundation uh, contact is. Of course, people can always reach out to me, Dan underscore Mance at roboticseducation.org. I have a pretty good habit of responding to every email. Sometimes it takes me two or three days, um, but I love the dialogue in this. I love talking to people. I always make sure I have time every week for these type of conversation. And uh, I look forward to some continued dialogue with people too. This is an exciting program to be on because I think your audience is the exact audience of the REC Foundation, and that doesn't align very often. Absolutely. So plenty of ways for people to learn more and to reach out uh, directly to Dan Mance, the CEO of the REC Foundation, for whom we have one last question. Uh, and it's a question I think you're going to have an interesting insight on, Dan. You know, we we talk with corporate CEOs. We talk with a lot of public policymakers, governors. We've had a couple of assistant secretaries of labor on the podcast, people running statewide educational institutions. You're somebody that really has an opportunity to get boots on the ground with high school students. And this final question is one that we ask every single guest here on the Tech Ed Podcast. And it's always fascinating to hear the answers. And that is, if you had one piece of advice to deliver to one of those high school sophomores that you get so much time with as you're out traveling 30 to 40 events a year, as they consider their future pathway, what would that advice be? My advice to them would be to investigate lots of alternative things to be very well-rounded. So um, I think, you know, it's so easy in this niche to talk about technology and stuff like that, but I highly encourage uh, all students and I encourage my own kids to dabble in sports, to try a music instrument, to do art, to participate in choir or drama, um, to really do, you know, experiment with everything. And maybe your passion is going to be music, you know, and or maybe your passion is going to be uh, being uh, in drama or something like that. And that's okay. Not everybody needs to go into a STEM career. I think everybody being exposed to STEM is really, really important, um, but that's not what you have to do. So I really encourage students to be well-rounded and dabble in everything. And then when you do have a passion for something, that's what you pursue, but make sure that you see what's out there available in all fields. Investigate lots of things, be well-rounded, dabble in everything. And I think the other reason that that advice, Dan, is so astute and so perfect is that we're finding that many of these things converge. And, and as you excel in STEM, maybe a background or some experience in areas like music, art, or choir, or drama will help you be more successful in that endeavor and vice versa. So great advice, a great conversation that we've had today with, with Dan Mance from uh, the REC Foundation, that organization CEO. Dan, thanks so much for all your insights, for the interesting stories and examples that you shared with our audience here on the Tech Ed Podcast. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks, Matt. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, boy, I really enjoyed reminiscing about some of my old products and some of my old connections too. So it's been quite enjoyable. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.